Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. So far this year, our podcasts have accompanied an original paper or review article we have published in the journal. We have covered a range of topics, as many of you know, including the management of open fractures, the role of denosumab in giant cell tumours, and recently a, a really excellent discussion on the role of cell therapies in orthopaedic surgery. We do hope these podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. As some, some of you may know, for the months of June and July, we are doing an extra podcast to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings. So over the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the June supplements of the BJJ that include 17 papers from the American Hip Society closed meeting in 2018. We hope to give you a brief overview of the Hip Society and who the members are, as well as discussing how this collaboration came about and how we hope this will benefit you as our listeners and readers. We also hope to give you a behind the scenes insight into how the studies within the supplement have been chosen, as well as some brief description and discussion on a few select papers. So firstly, I have the pleasure of being joined by our Editor-in-Chief here at the BJJ, Professor Faris Adad. Welcome, Prof, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Prof and I are delighted to be joined by the guest editor for the hip supplement, uh, Matthias Bostrom, who is the Chief of Hip Surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Welcome, Dr. Bostrom, and thank you again so much for taking the time to join us today. It's great being here. Appreciate the time. So, Dr. Bostrom, if I could start with yourself, uh, just for our lis listeners and readers, just a, a brief overview of what the Hip Society is and what role it sort of plays in the, in the hip community. The Hip Society is a uh, small group of uh, distinguished uh, hip surgeons uh, from the United States and uh, uh, internationally. Uh, it uh, is a, a relatively closed group of individuals. There's less than 100 uh, uh, members, um, and it is by invitation only. Uh, they have a mission of advancing uh, the care of, uh, of uh, uh, hip disease and, and, and taking care of patients who have uh, uh, various hip disorders, and it, it ranges from uh, the adolescent hip to uh, the very geriatric hip. It really encompasses all sorts of hip disorders and trying to improve that. The primary mission of, of the organization is obviously to uh, do that, but through primarily education and research. Um, and, uh, and, and it's been around for about 50 years. It was started by a number of Americans here in, in, the, in the United States, uh, but it has an international membership as well. And Dr. Bostrom, you also have the closed meeting, which the papers come from. But you have an open meeting at the academy as well. Is that is that right? Just yeah. describe those two. So, so the group actually uh, traditionally has had uh, two meetings: a closed meeting just for the members, which is uh, incredibly stimulating because uh, the the group uh, uh, knows each other well and and really can get to the meat of the topics without a lot of the fluff. Uh, and then the other main meeting that I think the public is aware of is. At specialty day at the uh, AAOS meeting, uh, and uh, uh, there they cover a, a wide range of, of very timely topics uh, within hip surgery. Uh, I think the important part is it's not exclusively arthroplasty, but other uh, uh, hip disorders as well. So that includes trauma as well as uh, developmental disorders. Okay, so obviously a broad radio. That's really helpful, Dr. Prosser, for sort of an overview for the listeners about what the HIT Society does. So, Prof, if I could come to you, obviously we'll discuss it uh, again next month in the NIS, NIS Society supplement, but can you give us an insight into how our collaboration with the HIP Society has come about? Indeed. Uh, in reality, as you know, we at BJJ 
always look to have the broadest reach uh, to educate as far uh, afield as we can, and also to get the best material for the Bone and Joint Journal from the best authors, from the thought leaders, and those who are really changing the nature of what we do clinically and improving the care of our patients. So we had a win-win here in that a couple of years ago, it became clear that the, the Hip Society and indeed the Knee Society were keen to relook at who published these very important papers from their proceedings. And uh, we felt that the, uh, this was an ideal partnership uh, for the Bone and Joint Journal. It uh, would deliver for us collaboration with people like Dr. Bostrom and the other thought leaders in North America to get their work and their papers into the Bone and Joint Journal, to get them engaged with the Bone and Joint Journal family, reviewing papers for us, and indeed to, uh, for us to spread their work and their message worldwide where the BJJ has a great reach. So when, when that opportunity came about, we thought this would be an ideal partnership uh, for us to put in place. So we uh, set forth uh, the communications and the, uh, went through the process and uh, we, were, we were successful. And it's really been a privilege to work with Dr. Bostrom for the last few months to put together uh, this particular uh, supplement from the closed meeting that took place uh, last year, the very good closed meeting that took place last year. Yeah. I think this is a huge opportunity to profile some fantastic work across the breadth of hip surgery uh, for our readers. No, I, I totally agree, Prof. And I think obviously we'll come on to discuss a few of the papers. I think the, the quality is with, without doubt. But just, just for, I suppose, for the listeners, just before we move on to some of those individual papers, could you just give a brief insight about how the papers were chosen and peer-reviewed prior to acceptance for publication in the supplement? Absolutely. As you know, we pride ourselves on a, uh, a very rigorous process of peer review at the Bone and Joint Journal, and we also have this uh, unique process where the papers then go through primary editing by orthopedic surgeons to get them to uh, a point where they are really very uh, readable, very crisp, very clear, probably the best presented material you'll find out there. So these papers really have been through the mill because they're initially presented by members of the HIP Society. They, they have to be members of the HIP Society to get into the closed meeting, and they're selected by Matisse uh, Bostrom and his team to be presented at that meeting. Out of those papers presented, uh, there is a call for papers to be submitted uh, to peer review at the Bowen Drawing Journal, and these were sent in by December 1. At uh, which point uh, all these papers went out for peer review. And this was a, a fairly complex peer review in that we ensured they were reviewed both by BJJ regular reviewers who were used to our processes, but we also introduced Hip Society and North American reviewers uh, to this process so that the, we got their context on these papers as well. So each paper had multiple reviewers and then came through a process uh, that involved Dr. Bostrom as guest editor. So really, this is, we hope, this has really selected some key papers that deliver very important messages and that will influence practice in hip surgery moving forward worldwide. Dr. Watson, anything you would add to that at all? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, there's no question that, that uh, uh, you know, this starts out with uh, well over 150 papers that are presented uh, at the, the closed meeting and uh, is, you know, basically come down to, uh, you know, a dozen and a half of really top quality papers. Um, so it is it's sort of the best of the best. And, you know, this is a group of individuals and, and, and the, 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 the concept of thought leaders is really the most important part here. Um, this group of thought leaders 
presents their best material, and then that best material is what's uh, being published in the BJJ. So it, it is a uh, sort of the best of the best uh, uh, in terms of uh, content and and timely also. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, themes within uh, medicine change uh, continuously, and certainly within hip surgery, uh, the themes have uh, uh, continued to change. Yeah, that, that's right. No, absolutely. It's obviously very robust. It's almost like a two-tier sort of review process there. And like you say, it's, it's almost less than 10% of what's published that are really, uh, really high-end meeting. So it really is uh, high quality. So, uh, I mean, given that, so we should probably move on to the, the supplement itself, Dr. Bostrom. So it just obviously there's a range of topics there that are discussed throughout hip surgery, as you've already described. But what do you feel are the sort of the core or topical themes from the papers over the past, past uh, year that were presented in the supplement? Well, I think the the... the Timely topics remain. Uh, surgical approaches uh, has been obviously a, a very hot topic for a while. We continue to uh, 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 follow what's happening in the adolescent hip uh, surgery realm as well. Um, in the United States, cost effectiveness and uh, perioperative care, pain management uh, are very, very top topical uh, and, uh, and really important topics uh, in terms of how we manage it, uh, patients. You know the usual topics of bearings and and uh, outcomes and and uh, infection and, and revisions are also a theme. So it it's a broad range of, of topics. Uh, some are sort of time honored. Uh, revision hip surgeries remains a, a, a topic. Infections un unfortunately are not going away. But I think there's some um, really interesting uh, ideas out there in the infection world as well. Uh, and then. Things that may be a little bit, uh, you know, I certainly see the, the, the excitement about different surgical approaches um, is, is coming to a close and, uh, and, and new things are coming up in, instead. So it, 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 it's a broad range of, of hip surgery topics, but also perioperative management, uh, which, yeah. is a big, which is a big deal in the United States, um, you know, outpatient surgery uh, for, uh, for these uh, disorders. Um, is a big deal, not so much in in uh, in Europe, and certainly in the United States, um, and it, it pushing the envelope on, on how quickly we can uh, get people moving after hip surgery. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's a really good summary of them, Dr. Rossman. I think as well, you know, not just in hip surgery, it seems two of the, the core topics that seem to run through a lot of the uh, meetings now is, as you say, about sort of pain relief and opiate uh, use um, uh, in particular. Uh, and also just, you know, uh, getting our patients perioperatively optimized so we can get them through the system uh, as, as quickly as possible. But just sort of move, moving on to, to the two, there was obviously two prize or award papers in the, the supplement. The first is sort of a large study of over 6,000 patients from a single center that looked at the impact of surgical approach, as you said, on the joint infection rates. And the second was from the Mayo Clinic looking again at a large series of patients uh, having hip and knee arthroplasty and the role of quite interesting about the role of allergy testing and comparing infection rates when you uh, use a, or don't use a cephalosporin. Could you, do you mind just giving our listeners just a brief overview of the two papers? Sure. Um, I'll start with the surgical approaches paper. And, and uh, this was uh, done from a, here, a, a, a single center here in the United States. And uh, they looked at uh, a, a several year period of, of over 6,000 patients. Uh, and uh, they uh, looked at whether they did a direct anterior or what they refer to as a non-direct anterior. That includes obviously uh, anterior lateral as well as, uh, as, well as posterior. And um, over this relatively contemporary period of time, two things uh, they found. One, 
uh, certainly the rate of infection within the direct anterior approach was two and a half times that of the non-direct anterior approach. Um, a, a little bit uh, surprising, I think, uh, especially if you consult Dr. Google in terms of what kind of approach you should have. Um, the other uh, was that they also instituted some pretty aggressive um, uh, protocols to decrease their uh, PGI rate, which was rather, uh, rather on the high rate, uh, certainly uh, relative to other institutions. And they found during this relatively short period of time of, of uh, you know, three or four years that they basically, um, uh, you know, basically have their infection rate. And so uh, two, two major take-home messages from this paper was, one, uh, it looks like approach does matter uh, in terms of infection rate. Uh, and two, if you institute appropriate uh, 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 protocols to decrease the rate, you can actually have a pretty profound effect in terms of uh, diminishing uh, the, the, the risk of infection. And to the point where at the tail end of the study, um, although the direct anterior approaches still had a higher infection rate, it was a much more reasonable rate at that point. The other paper uh, from the Mayo uh, looked at the use of allergy testing, and they uh, obviously have huge numbers of patients, uh, but they've, uh, over the years, uh, have had a very aggressive uh, approach to patients who come in and, and state they have allergies to various antibiotics. And so they referred patients to uh, their allergist, a fairly large number, almost a quarter of their patients ended up seeing the allergist. Uh, granted, that can be done at the Mayo because it's the Mayo and the, and the way this, the system works. Um, but the interesting finding with them is that um, if you use a broader-based antibiotics like cefazolin, which we do here in North America, um, the infection-free survivalship was much, much higher. And so the, the, the take-home message here is if someone states that they're allergic to penicillin, uh, they probably aren't, first of all. Is, is, and, uh, and if you can give them uh, cefazolin, a broader spectrum of antibiotics, their chance of uh, infection is lower. And so uh, if you don't know that if they're allergic or not, send them to an allergist. Chances are they're not going to be allergic. And then you can give a broader based antibiotics and they're going to have a better survivorship in terms of infection. Um, I think an important take home messages in this one. And the, the risk of infection was pretty significant if they, they were able to take cefazolin. It's, it's about a, a, a 33% less. And it's quite uh, big, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big deal for even a small institution if, they're, if you can cut your yeah. infection rate by, by a third. Yeah, yeah, that's not yeah, significant, and, and societally a huge, huge uh, uh, deal. Absolutely, and as you say, like uh, we often experience it here, is people are not sure about their allergy, are they? And so, in so it's, it's difficult to know. And so, this is an interesting paper that sort of stimulates discussion about that. Is there anything you'd add to that, Prof, at all about those two papers? I uh, only, I, I think the uh, the second paper in particular is going to be practice changing for many people, and will lead people to reflect on allergy histories more carefully. And to rethink, you know, we, we really need to think we've gone around the houses, certainly in the UK, with prophylaxis. So I think there's a lot to learn from that. No, I totally agree. Uh, Prof, just, so, just to come back to yourself, I was wondering if we could, obviously, another paper in the, um, in the supplement we could just thought we'd briefly discuss was your paper about the outcomes of repeat two-stage exchange hip arthroplasty for periprosthetic joint infection. I mean, obviously, uh, potentially an increasingly topical um, uh, area, I imagine. I just wonder if you could just briefly give us an overview of the paper and what made you look at it in particular. No, no, absolutely. I, as, as you probably know, about just over 20 years ago, I came back from uh, Vancouver 
and was very fortunate to work with Jeff Ridgeway and set up one of the first MDTs looking at infection. And so we started developing our algorithms and treatments and we've almost seen a full circle in that initially we were getting referred the infections primarily and dealing with them uh, as a sort of specialist infection center. And then more and more revisions were being undertaken for infection elsewhere and we were seeing the more complex failures come our way. And it, it rapidly became clear to me that people were coming to us having had multiple interventions, having had very powerful antibiotics, and really being in some difficulty and uh, tough to salvage. So we wanted really to take a more recent snapshot of what those cases looked like where two-stage revision had failed, just to really to sort of back up what was a simple perception that it really wasn't benign when that happened. It was a difficult problem to get out of. And so it's a really simple look back at those cases that had a failed two-stage exchange to see what happened to them. And the outcomes were pretty predictable. This is a high morbidity, high mortality uh, disease when there's a periprosthetic infection. Quite a few of those patients died. And our data looks like the data from the Mayo Clinic and other big infection centers in that there is a high failure to control the infection rate. Although we were lucky to control the infection uh, in over 50%, there was more than a third of the patients that either required repeated surgery, uh, antibiotic suppression, or ablative surgery. So this is a really complex group. Uh, we need to really understand their prognosis and be able to communicate that with them. And I think it will also feed back into that big discussion that we're starting to have about what the right intervention is for an infected arthroplasty in the first place, rather than necessarily yeah. up yeah. the ladder very quickly. Bridement implant retention, single stage revision, other procedures may have a role before we escalate up to this level. And we also, as, as Matthias said earlier, need to look at other forms of uh, both prevention and management of infection. It is still a devastating disease for our patients. Absolutely, absolutely. Anything you would add to that, Dr. Bushman, at all? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Professor Haddad's work is really incredibly important because it, it, it highlights how really, truly devastating um, this is. And, and, and uh, even though in the, the gold standard in the United States is, is this two-stage uh, exchange arthroplasty, um, it, it, it may not be the right answer for everyone. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, I think we have to start thinking outside of that traditional uh, uh, paradigm, uh, especially here in the United States. Uh, uh, elsewhere, I think in the world, they're doing that already as, as uh, is being done in England by uh, uh, Dr. Dodd and his group. So it's, um, you know, I, I think it's a, a topic that's not going to go away in the next uh, uh, 5, 10, probably unfortunately 20 years. Uh, but I think we have to think about it differently. No, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, no, I think that I wish we had a bit more time to discuss it, but uh, I think that's uh, us running out of time there. But thank you so much uh, to you both for joining us for our, our podcast today. And, and congratulations on a really excellent supplement. Thank you very much, Dr. Boston, for joining us all the way from America. It's very good of you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Thanks Andrew. Very thank, much you. For, thank you, Prof. That's great. So to our listeners, we, we do hope you have enjoyed joining us today. And we, uh, we encourage you to share any of your thoughts or comments through Twitter, Facebook, and the like. And feel free to post or tweet about anything we've discussed here today or any of our previous podcasts and we uh, thanks again for listening.